Well, this morning we continue in our study of Paul's letter to the Romans, and I thought some way that we'd make some quick progress through the letter, but we're not really going to do that. I know, I know that's true. I know that I should know myself better by this time in my life. So uh, let's turn to Romans 2. We've, we've made it to the second chapter. And um, I do want to read the, the first uh, part of the second chapter. Uh, it's the first 16 verses that oh, I'm going to read. Um, the apostle says, Therefore, you have no excuse, O oh man. And maybe I should point out before I read that uh, there are a couple of changes that Paul makes here. That in the previous chapter, he's speaking in third person. He's speaking about uh, the righteous and the unrighteous, uh, the sins of people, them, they, third person pronouns, third person um, statements. And now it's second person. It turns from them and they to you, you. And so uh, there may be something of uh, taking of the things he said in chapter 1 and now making practical application to the people he's writing to. So now you, you need to hear this. I mean, they need to hear what he said before, but it was about people in general. Now it's you. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. From passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge... Practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. But do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And that's the other point of transition. Um, um, in the chapter 1, he's speaking about the present revelation of the wrath of God from heaven, uh, the present state of things, and now he's turning towards the future, the future judgment of God, storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This is now future. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality for all who have sinned without the law, will also perish without the law. And there he's speaking about Gentiles who are without the law. They will perish without the law. Those who have sinned under the law, being the Jews, will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while 
Their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when God, according to my gospel, judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Now, this is a section of scripture that has some inherent problems in it, uh, particularly for those who view the book of Romans as this great treatise on the subject of justification by faith. Now we seem to have a justification that's predicated upon different principles. We have a justification that's not so much on faith, it's a justification that horror of horrors is in fact said to be on the basis of the things that people do, on their actions of obedience, on their, um, on their, on, on their righteousness. Um, let me get, yeah, it's, it's not the hearers of the law uh, who are righteous before God, verse 13, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Wait a minute now, how can it be the doers of the law will be justified? We're justified by faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Where's, where do the works of the law enter into it at all? And the people who say it doesn't enter into it all. And so we have to view Paul as maybe engaging in some kind of hypothetical statement of reasoning based upon maybe, well, what if we didn't have the gospel perhaps? And this is how things would be. But this is a possibility of maybe getting justified by the works of the law if you kept the works of the law in their entirety and fullness. Well, you know, you can say what you want trying to play out a scenario in which you know Paul's saying something that will satisfy your assumption that the book of Romans is all about justification by faith. And I would say that's where the rub is, is that the book of the Romans is not all about what we term justification by faith, or what Paul terms justification by faith in chapters 3 and 4. Because the justification we receive by faith is a present reality. And it tells the story of how sinners come out from the wrath of God that they presently stand under, the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, how we who stand under divine wrath by nature, they who do not believe, abide upon the, under the wrath of God, John says in John 3.36. So God's wrath comes to sinners. And how do we move out of the realm of divine wrath into the realm of divine grace? Well, that's what happens in this life. That's what happens now, today. When we believe in the Lord Jesus, we are justified. There is that decree of righteousness that God makes in the courts of heaven. And it's not something that he makes before the moral universe as we come before his judgment throne. That's something that's future. That will happen then. Now, God takes a sinner, dead in trespasses and sins, guilty in his sins, under wrath, and then brings this transition, brings this, this, this uh, movement of, his, of someone's status uh, to, to be under grace, to be forgiven, to be cleansed, to be, renewed, to be restored to his presence, to be uh, those who, bear, who are given his Holy Spirit because we're sons, because we've been adopted. We're given the spirit of his son whereby we might cry, Abba, Father. That's all this world reality. That's now. That's today. Paul's talking about the judgment. He's talking about things that are to come. And when you think about the judgment, who stands before the judgment seat of Christ? It's, well, those who either have believed or haven't believed. And those who have believed have certain identifying criteria that define them. They have come to know God. They have come to love God. They have come to desire God. They have come to 
seek to serve God, to obey God, to live under the law of God, to know something of the mercy of God, the forgiveness of God, and to be forgiving and loving and merciful and gracious towards others. And so when Jesus says the nations will be gathered before the throne, he will say to those on his right hand, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord, for you have, you know, I was sick and you visited me. You came to the hospital. You did hospital visitation. Uh, not from not, Jesus wasn't in the hospital, but one of the least of these, my brother, brethren, were. And you went to him. You visited him. Why? Because you loved me. You sought to serve me and my people. And as much as you've done it to one of these, the least of my brothers, you've done it to me. We serve Christ in his people. We serve Christ in the outreach to the world. We serve Christ in um, in our lives. And when we come before the throne of, 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 of judgment, Jesus is not going to say to people who have really done nothing, performed nothing, have lived for themselves, lived for them, their sins, have no mercy, no compassion, no grace towards others, and then say, well done. <laughs> well done? You haven't done anything. Well, he's going to say, well done. No, he's going to say to his people, well done. He's going to say to believers, well done. People who by faith have been justified. When we're justified by faith, there is the works of righteousness that we perform. Not to gain favor with God, but out of favor with God. Not to gain the smile of God, but out of the smile of God. We seek to honor him and serve him. And so that's what Paul's describing. He's describing the judgment throne. When regenerate, renewed believers come before the throne of judgment and God pronounces judgment upon their works, their righteous works, their works born of faith. That's what's being described here. You have any questions about that? So the justification is God's declaration of his people's righteousness. You know, the righteousness of a people who had no righteousness of their own came to faith in Christ to obtain his righteousness, but having his righteousness now seek to follow him, now seek in following him to emulate him, to live as he lived, to walk as he walked, to serve him in obedience to his words and conformity to his example. And it's that declaration before the whole moral universe when all the nations are gathered before the throne of God's judgment, and God says, these are my people. <laughs> look at them. These, this is the, these, these are the trophies of my grace. Look at, what I, look at who they are, and look at what I've done in them and for them. And he can boast on his people. And um, So that's the picture that you have of the judgment throne. It's that which is future. And is not speaking about that transition from wrath to grace that happens when the gospel's preached. When we proclaim Christ to people, we say, nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I cling. Don't trust in your righteousness. Don't trust in your works. You have nothing sufficient to gain the favor of God. You must receive the favor of God that comes to us in the gospel. There's where the grace of God is found. There's where the favor of God is found. And it's out of that favor that we live lives of righteousness. So, are we clear on that? Good. Good. Well, Paul begins, as I said, directing his attention to the readers in the second person. Second person, plural, you, you all, you all there in Rome. Now, we have just one word in English to describe second person singular and second person plural. Um, You, Ed, or you all. 
You know, for Southerners, we have, we have another pronoun, y'all, y'all. <laughs> well, that's the sense of the plural, y'all, all of you. Um, but he directs it again to the second person um, plural in terms of you, O oh man. You all in Rome, each and every one of you. Each and every one of you. You have no excuse, O oh man. And then I need to pause here, pause here to say that, again, commentators make all manner of assertions that sometimes I just you know, find, well, where's, where's the evidence for that? You, know, you can assert something, but can you prove it? Can you demonstrate it? Well, it's often said that here Paul is addressing the Jews. And it seems to me that's really contrary to what he's declaring. He says not, you owe Jew. He says you have no excuse, oh man. Uh, the anthropos, the general word for mankind, you human beings, you who I'm addressing. Um, he doesn't really address the Jew individually and particularly, particularly in verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew, at that point, it's clear he's narrowing in his concern upon the Jew. Now the Jew is mentioned as those who are have the law versus those who do not have the law. And of course, Jew and Gentile distinctions really run through the whole thing. The Gospels to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And um, you know he mentions that uh, also in verse 10, glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first, and also to the Greek. So Paul's concerned about these ethical distinctions that exist. Uh, uh, ethical, I'm sorry, ethnic, ethnic, not ethic ethnic distinctions that exist in the church at Rome. And so he's going to make his, his words directed towards Jews individually and in particularly. But here, it seems to me it's still all of you guys. It's still all of humanity is really in the same boat with respect to this. And I think this matter of um, pointing out the judge, the, 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 the way in which people make judgments, every one of you who judges, you pass judgment on another. You condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Um, these, here's an incidence of hypocritical judgments. You make judgments upon others about matters that you allow and tolerate in yourselves. And I think this does follow up on the previous section where Paul is speaking about uh, all manner of unrighteousness and evil that the people... Um, uh, under God's wrath uh, do, that even when people get to their worst, when God gives them up to the worst of what they do, they still have moral and ethical awareness. They're able to know that those who practice such things deserve to die. And again, I don't think he's speaking here just about physical death. Even the righteous die physically. But I think he's speaking about that ultimate death, that ultimate separation from God. Um, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Uh, and now that's a state of spiritual death in which we um, know that people deserve to die eternally. They be separated from the divine presence eternally in eternal judgment away from the presence of the Lord. Um, but they do them still. They don't repent. They don't turn to God. They don't seek forgiveness. They don't seek grace. And then they look upon other people and they say, huh, we're all in the same boat. We all do those same things. But they have moral and ethical ability to discern these things are wrong. And yet they will say, well, there's, you know, there's safety in company. You know, uh, if we're in a group of people that all do the same things, well, we're kind of exempted for judge, from, from negative judgments. 
but, but not everywhere, and not with everyone. There are people who also have an ability to make moral and ethical distinctions and frown, say, naughty, naughty. Shouldn't be doing that. Shouldn't be doing that. That's wrong. You, and so those people place themselves as the judges of others in their conduct. They do these things that are worthy of death and they judge people on the basis of their actions. Those actions are indefensible. Those actions are sinful. Those actions are wrong. Those actions ought not to be done. But then they turn around when they pass judgment upon others. Um, they condemn themselves because you, the judge, practice the very same things. It's all these moral arbiters you see in political t- times uh, today when they're making all manner of moral and ethical judgments upon other people as they themselves are moving through divorce courts with their spouses where adultery has been committed. And there's all kinds of things that have gone on in their lives. Uh, you know, they you find out that they've been um, caught in some kind of... Uh, uh, immoral, even illegal uh, activities and uh, pastors in churches uh, that are discovered that they they grifted the government for millions of dollars when COVID relief was offered. I mean, these things are just on the headlines of news reports from Christian organizations continually, even within the church. Uh, Everybody knows what's right and wrong, and everybody approves of the right and wrong. For everyone else, except for themselves. We become the exception to the rule. Everybody else has to live by the rules, but we become the exception to the rules. They're great judges of the conduct of other people. But they don't want to walk the walk. They don't want to do the will of God. They view themselves as the exceptions. And you know, again, I'm even saying this to you with the realization I got that stuff in myself. I mean, none of us are exempted from this. None of us. We all give ourselves a pass on things that we know we ought not to give ourselves a pass on. So, I mean, that's part of the plight of humanity and sin. We see, our, we see others really clear. You know, we have 20-20 vision with their crimes, their sins, their transgressions. Jesus says that, you know, judge not lest you be judged. Not, not that judgments shouldn't be made. Not that you shouldn't make distinctions between good and evil, right and wrong, and bad conduct and good conduct. You, you have to make those distinctions. And the Sermon on the Mount, the very context that he says those words, moral, ethical judgments are made throughout the chapter. But he's talking about those judgments in which we um, judge others and with, 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 with a severity and with hypocrisy that fails to take account of our own lives. We don't look at ourselves. We're looking at delicate eye surgery on other people uh, to look to remove a little speck in their eye, a little splinter that's in their eye, when Jesus says you've got a whole big tree in your own. How are you going to see clearly? How are you going to see clearly? He says, first deal with your own sins. First, think about your own transgressions. Get humbled in the presence of God in the light of your own sins. And that's going to make you more compassionate towards others who you need to go correct. You can't, you can't go to other people with a, you know, a, a harsh and um, self-righteous demeanor when you realize the extent of your own proneness to sin, your own 
um, um, struggles with sin, the reality of the, the, the stuff in your own life. And, and Paul says when you engage in this conduct, and, and all people to one extent or another do, and you know, when you find yourself constantly calling attention to the sins of other people, you need to really stop yourself and say, when's the last time I really took serious account of my own life? When's the last time I ever sat down before God and really took serious account of my own attitudes and my own actions and my own motivations and my own intents? Um, you know, again, we often are able to see others very clearly and see ourselves hardly at all. So Paul says, when you pass judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Again, what, do you, what would you think of a judge that's sitting on a bench who passes sentence upon someone for conduct that he himself is performing? He's going to send the, you know, the, the, I guess the big thing back in the day I was growing up, sent to jail someone smoking marijuana when he's going back into the judge's chamber smoking it himself. I mean, what kind of nonsense is that? What kind of hypocrisy? What kind of wickedness is that? But this is what you know, judges all the time do. They're, they're, and, you know, understand they're exacting public justice, but they're just happy they haven't been caught themselves. And the very same things that others who have been caught, they're pronouncing judgment upon. But that doesn't mean that does not mean they're going to get away with it because they stand guilty before the throne of God's judgment. The judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things, is Paul's conclusion. So even if you place yourself because you're more powerful than another person in the position of their judge, or more is known about them than is known about you, and you pass judgment upon them while your own secret sins are held in secret, well, there's a day that your secret sins are going to be exposed. The judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet you do them yourselves, that you shall escape the judgment of God? You've been sitting in judgment upon everybody all your life along for the very things you yourself are guilty of, and you think that's going to pass muster before the throne of God's judgment? You'll come before God's judgment and you'll be found out for the hypocrite you, you are. Or do you, and here's the other part of it, well, okay, I'm, I'm doing those things, but God is so kind and, and generous and forgiving and, and loving and gracious. Um, yeah, I do the, yeah, I'm guilty of the things I condemn in other people, but I'm a Christian. And because I'm a Christian, I have benefits the non-Christian doesn't have. He doesn't have any covering for a sin, but I do. In a merciful, gracious, forgiving God. So I'm presuming upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience. Now, his kindness, forbearance, and patience are great considerations to the people who really are humbled before God with respect to their own sins and transgressions. That's our hope. That God is this kind of God who does forgive, who does forbear. He is patient. But that means we should also be kind and forbearing and patient. Not haughty, self-righteous, arrogant, hypocritical judges of other people. If we engage in any kind of judgment at all on other people, it should be from the vantage point of riches of kindness, forbearance, and patience. That's what we desire from God, right? 
That's what we hope from God. That's what we presume from God. Well, that's a presumption we should then turn around and demonstrate to others as we assess them. Do it kindly. Do it patiently. Do it forbearingly. Paul says when you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance, when you don't show kindness and forbearance to other people, you're simply ignorant that the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance. (laughs) Now, it's meant to bring you to turn from your harsh, censorious, hypocritical, self-righteous judgments to be the kind of judge whose judgments are informed by the gospel. By the gospel, by the love of God, by the kindness of God, by the patience of God. When God comes in his grace and forgives us, it's to make us forgiving. When God comes in his grace and shows us forbearance, it's to make us forbearing. It's to make us repent. Repent of all the attitudes that are natural to us so that we can learn the attitudes that are unnatural to us, that are supernatural, that are the gift of the Holy, part of the working of of the Spirit, the fruits of the Spirit. Um, When God deals with us as he deals with us in the Gospel, it's to turn us away from the natural to the supernatural, from the carnal to the spiritual, um, to make us like himself in all of our dealings with other people. He says, but because of your heart and impenitent heart. And again, here's the assumption that people haven't really learned from the gospel how to seek a new heart. They don't have a new heart. They have a hard heart. They have an impenitent heart. They have a self-righteous heart. And because of that condition of a hard and impenitent heart, what's happening is instead of looking forward to the future where God's going to deal with you in kindness and in love and in mercy and everything you're presuming, you're actually storing up wrath for yourself. You're actually storing up wrath for yourself. Because if that's the kind of person you are, the way you relate to other people and judge other people, you know, Paul's assertion, Paul's assumption is you're not a believer. I mean, you just haven't trusted Christ. You've not been, you've not been transformed by the gospel. The realities of the gospel have never embedded itself anywhere in your heart, if that's how you are. So, out of the grace of God, you are just storing up wrath. This great transition from wrath to grace hasn't come. And wrath is continuing to mount. It's like a daily deposit in the bank. It's great when you have resources to go to the bank and put deposits in to build up your bank accounts so that when you have a need, you just you write out a check, you make a withdrawal, you have cash at hand, you do a wire transfer, however it is, you know, you're able to access the money to gain the things that you desire. But now, what if that bank account is an account in which the only thing that's getting stored up is wrath? And, you know, the old sermons that... Uh, take up on this theme, usually things entitled, payday someday. There's going to be payday someday. That bank account of wrath is going to come due. It's going to come due. It's going to, it's going to fall upon your head in storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. On the day when the righteous judgment of God will be revealed. 
So uh, transition from the present scene to the future scene. Transition to what's coming. Um, if we're the kind of person who have, has no excuse because we're self-righteous judges of others and we've never actually come before the judge of the universe counting for our own sins coming to the place where we see how how can we justify ourselves how can we justify our lives before this God we cannot we need a justification that comes to us from without we can't justify ourselves the only thing we can do is receive God's justification in Christ God justifies the ungodly God puts to our account the righteousness of Christ. God delivers out of his kindness, out of his mercy, out of his love that ought to teach us kindness and forbearance and patience and love. And so when we come before that judgment throne, it'll be either that we have come before that judgment throne as, as those who have had the gospel transform us, impact us, or not. One or the other. One or the other. Because in that day of judgment, God's going to render to everyone coming before that judgment throne according to his works. The works will be brought into account then. Not now. You can't move from wrath to grace through works. You can't get saved and justify your life before God because of your works. Only Christ can be your righteousness. Only Christ can be your justifier. Only Christ can bring that forgiveness. That's now. That's when the gospel is preached. That's when people are given the gospel account of God's accomplishments and achievement in, in His Son. But that then, then at that hour, in the day of wrath, when the righteous judgment of God, God is revealed, God's going to be concerned to display in his people the goodness that's in them, that he put in them. That's what's going to be displayed before the moral universe. He's not going to lie about you know, some rebel sinner who never came to humility before the presence of God is going to walk up before the judgment throne and God's going to lie about him and say he's a, he's a good righteous person and I put good in him when nothing good is there yeah, judgments can be according to works God's going to give to those who by patience in well doing seek for glory, honor and immortality and you know what? That's a design to describe his people. That's supposed to describe you and me who are believers in Jesus. That's Paul's assumption. That if you're a Christian, you're someone who is by patience, meaning perseverance, stick to keeping at it, keep pursuing doing well, because you're seeking for God's favor. Not, not, not his favor in the sense of justification, but with the sense of his favor each day, that we're walking in paths that please him. Again, because we're Christians doesn't mean God has changed moral, moral reality. And so when his people do evil things, he's happy and pleased. No, no. That's, he will bring his fatherly chastisement against his people who rebel and do the things that are evil. God hasn't changed his moral standards but we change our pursuits we change by the grace of the gospel the things we long for and desire 
And so we seek. What do we seek for? We seek for glory. We seek for honor. We seek for immortality. And now, let me just mention here this matter of immortality, because again, this word's used in Scripture, and a lot of times people get confused, and there are those around today who are looking to confuse people about the subject of immortality, as if to say that mankind has never been created at all, or that there's ever e thought that there's eternal persistence of being in some fashion in our createdness. And so they will say immortality is something that only happens when um, God grants it. Um, and so we're not to conceive of our, us as being immortal in any real sense. So they'll teach usually a doctrine of soul sleep that happens after you die. You just simply don't go out of existence for a while. You go out of being for a while. And then when resurrection comes and the body's raised, then the soul also is raised. And, and in their minds, the inward, soulish, spiritual, um, non-material existence that Christians believe we possess that doesn't really exist apart from the body. That uh, when the body dies, the, the soul dies, or the soul sleeps, or the soul goes into non-existence until the resurrection comes, and then immortality begins. God gives immortality then. This word immortality, it simply means without death. Without death. And the fact is, we're not without death, even as Christians in this life. We're not without death. Uh, I do believe we have spiritual essence in us that never is extinguished. That to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But until we get to be with the Lord, we uh, still have mortality immortality because we have death we have death the body will die the body will go into the ground but that's a different issue really whether death is present what defining death biblically and whether the existence of human beings are what we usually call bipartite there's two two aspects of it when God created man, he created him dust from the ground. God got his fingers dirty in the soil, making a man in his image and likeness. It's an amazing picture of God forming the man. And um, then he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. That's something that didn't come from the dirt. That's something that came from God himself, breathing into his nostrils the breath of life. So that man became a living being became a living being formed in two aspects. Now, God made living beings of the sea creatures and of the, and of the land animals uh, just by speaking a word. Let the earth bring forth. The earth brought forth the land animals. The sea brought forth the sea creatures. God, just, God didn't just say, let the earth bring forth man. He didn't just command it. He formed him, dust from ground, and then breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And that aspect of the breath of life goes, to be, goes back to God, even when the body goes into the ground. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. There is existence beyond the, the grave. Even in the Old Testament, and in all of the arguments about the Old Testament, speaking about Sheol, and there's supposedly no distinction between the destiny of the righteous and the destiny... No, there is clearly a distinction. The unrighteous do not go to the same place as the righteous do. Sheol is not some kind of a compilation of all people uh, in some sort of a, uh, I don't know what the word is, uh, just state of uh, 
suspended animation or something until the resurrection comes. That's just something that has been concocted out of people's minds. It's just not the testimony of the word of God. But uh, again, immortality just simply means death has lost its sting. Death is over. Death has uh, been swallowed up by life, is the biblical picture. But that doesn't mean there's not such a thing as eternal death of the wicked. But for the righteous, it's immortality. For the righteous, death ceases to have its sting. It ceases to have existence. Death is swallowed up by life. Isn't that a great picture? It's actually found in Isaiah. Isaiah, I think it's chapter 26, about death being swallowed up by life. And Paul quotes it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Because what is death, as it's described in the Old Testament? It's itself is the great devourer. It devours human lives. I mean, you know, the cemeteries are filled with people that formerly walked the earth and lived. And death devoured them, took them from this, this world. And God's going to raise the dead. God's going to give life and death itself will be devoured by something greater than itself, which is life. The life of God will extinguish and expunge all remnants of death. Death will be swallowed up by life. And that's what we seek for. We seek for that state of things. And in conjunction with that, Isaiah speaks and Revelation speaks of all, all, all the tears wiped away, all the sorrows are things of the past. And the revelation says, behold, he makes all things new. We desire that. We seek after that. And then there's eternal life, which is not just duration, though it is. It's a new kind of life, a new quality of life, a new, a new power of life in which the life of the age to come uh, comes into our Experience in what will then be the here and now. On the contrary, those who are self-seeking, those who are self-seeking. It's interesting, the unrighteous are, are, are viewed in that way. They're self-seeking. They don't seek after God. They don't seek after Christ. They don't seek after God's law. They don't seek after God's will. They don't seek after God's ways. Everything is wrapped around themselves. They're slaves to themselves. They're self-seeking. And hence they do not obey the truth, but they obey unrighteousness. There will be wrath, and there will be fury. There will be the full display of divine anger against them. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. Now again, we're not really clued in to what form this tribulation and distress takes place. There are images that the scripture gives, uh, metaphors that the scripture gives. But it's interesting, those metaphors usually are not consistent. And we can think of eternal burnings as one metaphor. Um, But how do you define what exactly that is, eternal burnings? Uh, Again, we literalize it. We say, oh, it's kind of like when you take a match and you put your finger in it and you feel the pain of burning. That's going to be your whole body is going to be feeling that way, that piercing sense of, of fire. But then it speaks about out of darkness. And how does that relate to fire? What's Oh, you know, it's, it's horrific. It's just not what we're designed to be. We're designed to... We're made for God. We're made for His fellowship. We're made for His love. We're made for His life. We're made for um, living in His presence. And that's what is going to be 
not the reality at all for these people. God's going to make his full displeasure clearly known when he says, depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. It's away from God's presence. Eternal destruction, away from God's presence. That's what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. But, contrast, glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. And again, I don't think he's saying that there's some priority that the Jew will have that will put their heaven into a more heavenly heaven or the, entering into the new heavens and new earth in a, in a status different from the, from, the, from the Greek. But that the Jew has priority in terms of the gospel coming into the world and receiving the gospel, receiving the promises of God. And um, again, I think there's a, um, you know, just a, maybe a priority of honor, but not a priority of... Uh, of, of, of good and, and joy and, and light and life and everything else that we experience. Um, again, God shows no partiality. And Paul goes on to explain it further. When he says in verse 12, those who sinned without the law, again, those are the Gentiles who do not have the law of God. They don't have the written code. They don't have the Mosaic commandments. Um, They'll perish without the law. They don't need the law to condemn them. They don't need the law to define the reality of their sinfulness. And he's going to explain more of that in chapter 5 when he's going to speak about the connection with Adam. But here he just says they will perish without the law. And those who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. There will be an objective criteria by which they will be judged. What says the law? Well, one thing the law says is that they've not, they've not kept it. They've not kept it. And Paul says it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And so the Gentiles who do not have the law, when positively speaking, they do by nature what the law requires, they're a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts where their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day that God, according to my gospel, judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Again, Gentiles, even without the law, they are moral creatures made in the image and likeness of God. And there is, Paul Paul, Paul doesn't actually say that the law is written in their hearts. That's something that... um, it seems to me Jeremiah reserves that for the uh, new covenant. New covenant reality is that God writes his law within our minds and in our hearts. But he does say there's a work of the law. There's a work of the law. There's something about the things that are contained in the law that has its correspondence in the hearts of people by nature. Because what the law enshrines is the principles of moral right. That is part of our createdness. And even though we are fallen, and even though the image of God has been distorted and twisted and perverted, and it's not accurate, it doesn't convey properly what uh, we were designed to be and do because of sin, is not completely eradicated. There is something of a moral sense of right and wrong. There's honor among thieves, as they say. 
There's a code that even criminals have, that fellow criminals are not to transgress. And yet, the fact is, whatever law you concoct, one thing's clear, in some fashion, we don't keep it. We're never even up to our own standards of what right is. Now, Paul says, if a law could be made that would make us righteous, God would have made us righteous through the law. But you can't make any law that's righteous, because no sooner do you make a law, we break it. We break it. I mean, just consider New Year's. Consider resolutions that you make. This coming year, I'm going to do X, Y, Z. That's good for the 1st of January, but the 2nd of January comes around. So it gets a little bit... A little bit uh, you know, unsteady the resolutions you made the days before and by the time January is through usually the resolutions are through and every now and again we keep them That's, which is a good but not all of them and not always we're, we're sinners we're, we, just, we don't even keep up to our own standards never mind God's standards our own sense of morality we don't keep but we know we should we know it's right and so Paul speaks of their conflicting thoughts. There's conflicting thoughts. Because you know what's right, and then you don't do what's right. You prove what's right, but you can't achieve what's right. And so thoughts that are conflicting come to accuse you. Rebel, sinner, unfaithful. Even, even the morality of the Gentiles convicts them of their wrong. Or it can excuse them, say, okay, you, you did okay there, but not everywhere, not in every regard. And it'll be that reality that will meet those who have never had a page of the Bible ever brought to their attention. They never had the Word of God brought to their attention. On that day, when according to the God, God, my Gospel, God judges the secrets of men, those secrets will be fully revealed. And, you know, I don't see that this is a revelation that God gives to the Gentiles that's saving. I mean, it just doesn't seem to be. I could be wrong, and I could be surprised, and if God saves a bunch of Gentiles who are moral and trying to do what is good, I'm not going to debate it. I'm not going to complain about it. But I'm going to say that I don't know that to be the case, and not knowing that to be the case, I do know people need the gospel. I know that the gospel needs to be sent down to the world, and you can't say, well, they got their own religion. Yeah, they got their own religion, they're going to get to heaven anyhow. I mean, I just don't see the Bible teaching that anywhere. That's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's just a delusive hope. And uh, I think the reality of what Paul's saying, just again, it, it speaks about the righteousness of the judgment that God will bring. God will judge the secrets of men in accordance with the gospel. Um, God, he speaks of this day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. It's telling us that what God does in the judgment day is in rectitude. It's, in, it's right. God's not going to ju- uh, juggle the books. He's not going to say something's good that's bad. He's, he's not going to make exceptions to the rules. The rules will apply. There will be no partiality in this judgment. And so, and just in the light of that, we need to be aware that, that we need to be the kind of people Paul describes believers to be. <laughs> when we judge, we judge in kindness and forbearance and patience. We have the kindness of God leading us to repentance. We have the commitment to patience and well-doing, seek to seek for glory and honor. 
to have these qualities of life that Paul says characterize the believer and the opposite characterizes those who are unbelieving but again I guess the larger point is Paul's telling Jew and Gentile alike you're, you're all in the same boat there's no no one has an edge up on anyone when it comes to these the judgment of God and we all come to God through faith in Christ on equal footing and we will be judged by God in terms of our own um, our own life uh, again this judgment is uh, is, is, um, is and you know it's so, so many of these distinctions that they were making in the um, in the Roman church, Roman church when you put it in the light of eternity it's just not going to mean a whole lot it's just not going to be the things that are most essential to the subject of when we appear before Christ's judgment throne and it's, it's probably a wise thing to so live in the light of that judgment throne and how we relate to other people in the light of that judgment throne and I think when we have attitudes of heart that are filled with enmity and look to exclude this one and that one and the other one because they don't measure up to our standard of what a reformed Christian should be um, what's that going to be like in the judgment throne when we've excluded half the population that will enter the new heavens and new earth we said well we'll have nothing to do with those people that we'll spend all eternity with I mean there's something very sanctifying about the judgment throne and considering it not so much for the sake of questioning am I going to be there or not that's not really the issue Paul's talking about he's not talking about the issue of personal salvation personal salvation is secured to us through faith in Jesus Christ but it's the reality of the, of the gospel that saves that really informs our relations with other people and our attitudes towards the people that we will be spending all eternity with and so I think that's why he brings us uh, to that judgment throne and uh, just to consider the righteous judgment of God when the secrets of men will be revealed in that day um, in the judgment that God brings upon all humanity. Well, in the final part of chapter 2, Paul's going to now address the subject of the Jew and their confidence and their boasts that... Uh, Again, in the light of which, it's, it's mislaid confidence. And God willing, we'll take that up next week. But I do see a hand that went up in question. Yes? Just, um, just simply, um, the last verse. It, it, it's interesting that Paul says, through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. I just find it very interesting that he doesn't say this, the gospel declares, but he says, my gospel mm-hmm. declares. What, why, why does he... Identify the gospel as my gospel. Yeah, because uh, again, I think that Paul is aware. Uh, the question is, why does Paul refer to the gospel as my gospel? Um, I think Paul is aware that a special stewardship was given to him uh, with respect to understanding how the gospel plays out in the world. Um, it's reflected in the book of Ephesians, chapter three, and just turn. It's a good. It's a good question because this is this this is a matter that's taken up again uh, in the Roman letter. So this might be a good place to go in conclusion. This will help perhaps to clarify your question, Jan. Um, here in chapter three, Paul says uh, the Ephesian letter. He says, um, "I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles." He's an apostle to the Gentiles. That's his main 
uh, focus. Uh, the apostleship to the Jews was given to Peter, the Jerusalem apostles. Apostleship to the Gentiles was given to Paul. This is a special stewardship given to him. Assuming you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Again, for you Gentiles. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. Now mystery is something that is uh, hidden until it's revealed. Uh, when Daniel was called upon by Nebuchadnezzar to interpret his dreams, he called it a mystery. It was a mystery that is revealed. I'm going to tell you what this mystery is. This is a mystery. You can't access it. You can't understand it, Nebuchadnezzar. No one can until God reveals it. And when God reveals it, it that, it, this is a revealed mystery. This is a mystery hidden, but now made known, because God's made it known. So a mystery has that aspect that's been hidden, now it's been made known. Well, what is this mystery that Paul says was hidden and is now made known? He says, um, this mystery in verse 6 is that Gentiles are fellow heirs. Fellow heirs. Again, this plays into the whole question of Jewish-Gentile relations in the Roman letter, which were strained. <laughs> those relationships were strained, and Paul is addressing those things. Um, and so the mystery is the Gentiles are fellow heirs members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And Paul says in verse 5, he says, This mystery was made known to the sons of men in other generations, I'm sorry, was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And so Paul says he has a special stewardship of this gospel which tells how it is that Jews and Gentiles come into one body, receive one salvation on equal footing. Now you go to the Old Testament and you see the whole question of Gentile inclusion, how the Gentiles are made to be the people of God. And it's usually the picture that the Gentiles come and lay hold of the garment of the Jew and says, teach us God's ways. So the Jew have, has a, a, a preeminence, a priority. They come through the Jew. I mean, actually, of course, that did happen historically. But there is the picture that the nations come to Zion. They come to Jerusalem. They come to the temple to be taught God's ways. And so there's always the picture of something of an imbalance of the Jews having priority in some sense. Now they do have a priority to the Jew first and also the Greek. But the priority is more a temporal one than one of preeminence. No one's preeminent in the church. Paul's saying this is the mystery where we all come into the body of Christ on equal footing. Fellow heirs. Fellow members of the same body. So that there's no second class citizenship. There's no one-upsmanship on any segment of the Christian church above any other section of the Christian church. So I think that's the aspect of the mystery. You know, how, do you, how do you get uh, a Gentile inclusion into Israel that's not Israel having a place of preeminence and prominence? That's what, the, of course, the Jews expected would occur. They would come into the people of God as, as we bless them and they come to us. And Jesus turns it around and says, no, we go to the world. We go to the world. And uh, this gospel comes to the world where, again, not everybody's coming to Israel. Israel's coming to the world. It's just, just the, the opposite perspective. And Paul says that's a mystery that was given to him. 
So that you should expect when you read it in the Old Testament, and it seems as though Israel at many points has a priority, say, so, well, that was then, but this is now. This is now. And they don't have that priority. In fact, there's even passages in the Old Testament that strikingly enough say that Israel's third in line after Assyria and after Egypt. That's come to the end of um, Isaiah 19. Uh, uh, Egypt becomes the preferred people and uh, Syria becomes the preferred people. Those are the two great empires that were given the Jews at that time a run for their money. Now God says they're going to be my people and they're going to be the preferred people. And uh, Israel is going to be third, third in line. First shall be last and the last shall be first. This is uh, how Jesus put it. Yes, Tim. So you're saying that because this gospel is revealed to Paul speaking, like going back to what Jan says, that, that he could could say that it was my gospel. Yes, yes. He uses that expression, my gospel, many times. This is a special stewardship of understanding God's ways in uh, th- that pertain to the Gentile ministry, that pertain to the Gentile outreach. And so as an apostle to the Gentile, he had a special stewardship over that revelation and that understanding. I mean, even in, I think, you, some of the tensions you see, even in Acts 22, when he came back to uh, Jerusalem, the Jewish church didn't really see quite clearly just yet. Many of them were still not preaching to Gentiles. Many of them were still not concerned about the outreach. And that's one of the reasons Paul thought that the collection ministry was so vitally important to bring a collection ministry of love from the Gentile churches to his nation and to show that fellowship they have with one another. He's going to talk about that later in the book of Romans. Well, I kept you longer than normal. Let's commit our thoughts to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful for this time in your word. And and Lord, we pray that as we've considered the reality of your righteous judgment to come, we would live in its light, and even in our attitudes, relations with others, uh, we would be humbled before you and before others. We would be more welcoming and receiving, more kind and more caring, more uh, conscious of our uh, attitudes towards others as constituting a great measure of the, of the uh, reality of, of Christian living and Christian righteousness. Uh, that we would receive those whom you have received and we would love those whom you have loved and we would serve those whom Christ came into the world to to serve and to give his life a ransom for them. And so we pray you would be pleased to keep us from a hardened and penitent heart, keep us from sinful, hypocritical judgments, keep us from uh, the, the kind of life that's all wrapped around ourselves and give us lives that seek to serve you as you have served us, to demonstrate the, the, the love of Christ in the way he loved us. And he came into the world to serve us, that we would serve others in this world uh, to the glory of God. So we ask you to hear our prayers. We ask that you'd bless our greeting of one another this morning, our entering into the morning hour of worship, as we'd ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.